Book Two, Chapter Two of Clara Vaughan, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie McLean. Clara Vaughan, Volume One by R. D. Blackmore. Book Two, Chapter Two. Although I find a sad pleasure in lingering over these times, with such a history still impending, I cannot afford the indulgence. Dear mother's simple funeral took me once more to my native place. Even without Mr. Huxtable's generous and noble assistance, I should have laid her to rest by the side of the husband she loved so well. But difficulties, sore to encounter at such a time, would have met me on every side. Moreover, the kind act cheered and led me through despondency, like the hand and face of God. Caring little what people might say or think, I could not stay at a distance. Nature told me that it was my duty to go, and duty or not, I could not stay away. And now for the last time I look on the face and form of my mother. That which I have played, and talked, and laughed with, though lately not much of laughter. That which has fed and cared for me till it needed my care in turn. That which I have toddled beside, or proudly run in front of, whose arms have been round me whenever I wept, and whose bosom the haven of childhood's storms, first to greet me with smiles in the morning, and last to bless me with tears at night, ever loving and never complaining, in one word for a thousand, my mother. So far away now, so hopelessly far away, there it lies indeed, I can touch it, kiss it, and embrace it, but oh, how small a part of mother, and even that part is not mine. So holy and calm it lies, such loving-kindness still upon its features, so near me, but in mystery so hopelessly far away. I can see it, but it never will know me again. I may die beside it, and it cannot weep. The last, last look of all on earth, they must have carried me away. I remember tottering down the hill, supported by a stalwart arm. The approach to the house prevented, or something. Two children ran before me, stopping now and then to wonder, and straggling to pick hedge-flowers. One of them brought me a bunch, then stared, and was afraid to offer them. "'Nancy, I'll be the death of thee,' whispered a woman's voice. The little girl shrunk to me for shelter, with timid tears in her great blue eyes. So I took her hand, and led her on, and somehow it did me good. At intervals the funeral hymn, which they sang on the road to the grave, fell solemnly on our ears. Someone from time to time gave out the words of a verse, and then it was sung to a simple, impressive tune. That ancient hymn, which has drowned so many sobs, I did not hear, but felt it. We arrived at Vaughan St. Mary late in the afternoon of the second day. The whole of the journey was to me a long and tearful dream. Mr. Huxwell came with us. He had never before been further from home than Exeter, and his single visit to that city had formed the landmark of his life. He never tried to comfort me as the others did. The ignorant man knew better. Alone I sat by my father's grave with my mother's ready before my feet. They had cast the mold on the other side so as not to move my father's coverlet. The poor old pensioner had been true to her promise, and man's last garden was blooming like his first flower-bed. My mind, if any I had, seemed to have undergone some change. Defiance and pride and savage delight in misery were entirely gone, and depression had taken the place of dejection. Death now seemed to me the usual and proper condition of things, and I felt it an impertinence that I should still be alive. So I waited, with heavy composure, till she should be brought, who so often had walked there with me. At length she was coming for good and all, and a space was left for me. But I must not repose there yet, 
I had still my task before me. The bell was tolling faster and the shadows growing longer, and the children who had been playing at hide-and-seek, where soon themselves shall be sought in vain, had flitted away from sight, perhaps scared at my presence, perhaps gone home to tea, to enjoy the funeral afterwards. The evening wind had ceased from troubling the ewes, and the short-lived songs of the birds were done. The place was as sad as I could wish. The smell of new earth inspired, as it always does, some unsearchable, everlasting sympathy between the material and the creature. The sun was setting behind me. Suddenly a shadow eclipsed my own upon the red loam across the open grave. Without a start, and dreamily, as I did all things now, I turned to see whence it came. Within a yard of me stood Mr. Edgar Vaughan. In a moment the old feeling was at my heart, and my wits were all awake. I observed that he was paler than when I had seen him last, and the rigid look was wavering on his face, like steel reflected by water. He lifted his hat to me. I neither rose nor spoke, but turned and watched him. Clara, he said in a low, earnest voice, I see you are still the same. Will no depth of grief, no length of time, no visitation from him who is over us all, ever bend your adamant and implacable will? I heard, with some surprise, his allusion to the great being, whom he was not wont to recognize, but I made him no reply. "'Very well,' he resumed, with the ancient chill hardening over his features. "'So then let it be. I am not come to offer you condolence which you would despise, nor do I mean to be present when you would account the sight of me an insult. And yet I loved your mother, Clara. I loved her very truly.' This he said with such emotion that a new thought broke upon me. Quick as the thought, he asked, "'Would you know who killed your father?' "'And my mother, too,' I answered, "'whose coffin I see coming.' The funeral turned the corner of the lane, and the dust rose from the bearer's feet. He took his hat off, and the perspiration stood upon his forehead. Betwixt suspense and terror and the wildness of grief, I was obliged to lean on the headstone for support, and a giddiness came over me. When I raised my eyes again, there was no one near me. In vain I wiped them hurriedly and looked again. Mr. Vaughan was gone, but on the grass at my feet lay a folded letter. I seized it quickly and broke the seal. That moment a white figure appeared between the yew-trees by the porch. It was the aged minister leading my mother the last path of all. The book was in his hand, and his form was tall and stately, and his step so slow that the white hair fell unruffled, while the grand words on his lips called majesty into his gaze. Thrusting aside the letter, I followed into the church and stood behind the old font where I had been baptized, a dark and gloomy nook fit for such an entrance. She who had carried me there was carried past it now, and the pall waved in the damp cold air, and all the world seemed stone and mold. But afterwards, on the fair hillside, while the faint moon gathered power from the deepening sky, and glancing on that hoary brow sealed the immortal promises and smoothed the edges of the grave, around which bent the uncovered heads of many who had mourned before, and after a few bounds of mirth should bend again in mourning, until in earth's fair turn and turn others should bend and they lie down, beholding this and feeling something higher than dust to dust, I grew content to bide my time with the other children of men, and remembered that no wave can break until it reached the shore. End of Book 2, Chapter 2 Recording by Katie McLean.